average Joe plus to me is ultimately I'm not anything special, right? I live in the suburbs of Denver. Um, I've got two kids, wife, a job. Um, I do everything I can to be outdoors. And uh, But at the end of the day, I can't say that I'm remarkable at anything. Welcome to the Got Game University podcast. I'm Mike Edgehouse, and with co-host Ryan Smith, we have a lifetime of experience as husbands, fathers, and hunters. On this podcast, we look to give you that knowledge through interviews with subject matter experts, average shows, and our own stories in the field. Stay tuned. On this installment of the Got Game University podcast, I sit down with longtime friend, entrepreneur, and full-on elk killer, Ryan Miller. Ryan discusses his journey from being addicted to fly fishing and guiding his fishing clients in Northern California, Alaska, and Mexico, until a work decision took him to Dallas. The mountains continued to call Ryan, and he facilitated a move for him and his family to Denver, where he heard about these creatures called elk. Ryan goes into detail about how elk captured all his thoughts and consumed him. Spending several years in the mountains without a kill, he soaked up all the info he could. He goes into detail about his first elk kill opened the floodgates, consistently having chances to kill elk. We discuss strategic patience, being confident, but not cocky in the mountains, and how to soak it all in. In addition, Ryan describes his culinary ability to consume many, many pounds of spoiled meat. Not that I'd recommend that, but it is a fun topic. This episode is loaded with tips and golden nuggets, whether you're a first-time hunter or an experienced pro, as well as a bunch of laughs shared by longtime friends. Thanks for listening and enjoy the conversation. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of the Got Game University podcast. Uh, I'm your host for this one, Mike Edgehouse. Ryan Smith is not available today, so I figured I would take this one by myself. Today we have a special guest, self-proclaimed Average Joe Plus, Ryan Miller. Uh, I've known Ryan for, man, I think 17 years or something like that. We're going to talk about Ryan's journey from, uh, how do I say this nicely, from zero to hero in the Elk Woods, as well as everything else that he does. So um, that's my brief introduction of a guy who uh, I'm sure has a lot of great advice for new elk hunters and seasoned elk hunters, as well as dads as we try to get our way into the woods. So Ryan, welcome. Thanks for coming on, man. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Pleasure to be here. And Yeah. yeah. I'm going to go ahead and claim average Joe plus that'll be a t-shirt coming out near you. So tell me what the average Joe plus actually means. So average Joe plus to me is ultimately I'm not anything special, right? I live in the suburbs of Denver. Um, I've got two kids, wife, a job. Um, I do everything I can to be outdoors. And, uh, but at the end of the day, I can't say that I'm remarkable at anything, but the plus is I really, passionate about things that I've I want to achieve or or really want to explore. Um and elk hunting was one of those things that I fell wholeheartedly in love with. Really, I can't even tell you the day, but when it happened, it happened. So give us the 30,000 foot overview of of who you are. We know you're you're a dad living in suburban Denver, Colorado, right on the outskirts. Um but 
I already know your history. I know a little bit about you. I, I know the nefarious things that you may or may not have done in your past life at Chico State and everything else, but give us a, give us your background because just so our listeners know, Ryan and I have a pretty long history. Um, we actually met, I hired Ryan as a fly fishing guide with another buddy of mine and we kind of immediately hit it off and knew it was somebody I wanted to stay in contact with. And uh, I have a way I describe Ryan, but I'm going to let him try to describe himself before before oh, I describe him. That's that's loaded. Um, <laughs> yeah, so born and raised really in the, the foothills of the Lake Tahoe area in Northern California, uh, brother, parents, all that stuff. I uh, spent most of my life in the outdoors with my dad and my brother and my mom would come occasionally and just got exposed to all the wonderful things about it. Um, at the time, you know, like most of us, we follow in our dad's footsteps. Um, he was fishing, hunting, skiing, doing all that. So I did the same. Um, and at the time, like fishing just hit hard for me. Um, he hunted, but it wasn't anything, uh, you know, super aggressive. Uh, but fishing was something he was really passionate about. So I went with him all over the place. Mm-hmm. And um, for me, that really sank in when he bought me a graduation or my parents bought me a graduation trip to go to Alaska. So this was high school. So I had an opportunity to go um, up to Alaska and, you know, be guided on some neat rivers. And it was a, you know, hodgepodge camp. It wasn't anything like glitz and glamour. It was really amazing. And I just saw these guides, you know, there's hanging sawed off shotguns off their chests. They're ripping jet boats through all the place. And, you know, just the ability for them to say, hey, do this, do that. And voila, a fish magically appeared on your line. Now, Alaska is obviously a special place. Um, That's where I just, I I fell in love. Um, So came back, uh, went to Chico State University, as you um, called out, immediately got a job at a little local fly fishing store, really as the Sunday grunt. Mm-hmm. for a long time so you know those fly bins that are in shops right i used to clean them take all the flies out count the flies make the labels clean the shop um so you mean those fly bins that i always pick like the size 16 <laughs> out and then put it in like the size somewhere eight. else you have to go figure it out you know uh mike and a lot of jeff <laughs> call myself the janitor and that was one of them <laughs> so yes doing all those things uh and then really just started i got the guide bug uh so had an opportunity to learn from the existing guides, some of the best um, really that were in Northern California at the time and still are. And uh, my godfather had built a wooden drift boat and he gave it to me. And that was it. That was it. That's when things just went absolutely crazy. So at that point, I started building a business. I was going to school two days a week, still carrying like 18 units or whatever and guiding like five days a week. So that's kind of when we met. Yep. And I remember the day you showed up, you opened that car door and that was it. It was friends friends for life. <laughs> so I, I went hog wild. I was fishing probably 300 days a year. Um, yep. Started getting to travel and guide in other areas. So I went and ended up guiding in Alaska. Uh, did some time in British Columbia, Mexico, Northern California, just really just chasing the sun from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, found a girl I was interested in mm-hmm. and um, she moved to Texas. So I kind of parted ways with everything and I moved to Texas. So we moved to North Dallas, which for you listeners, you can kind of imagine the stark difference between the beautiful rivers all over the world to at the time, a, a cubicle in Dallas. The Dallas right. period. <laughs> yeah. 
So I, I did. I spent forever trying to figure out a job, right? Because mm-hmm. I was a guy. Yep. Um, ended up getting pretty lucky. Landed at a startup, uh, a digital marketing agency in Addison, Texas. And uh, that really took off too. So I left all that behind, went hog wild into the job world, um, was pretty successful uh, doing all that. Fast forward, I don't know, a few, maybe eight years or so, uh, had an opportunity to leave Dallas for another job. So my wife and I took that and got the heck out of there. Love, love Dallas, love North Texas, um, but needed some woods and some trees to feel at home again. So we moved here about seven years ago. Um, didn't touch a fly rod very much at all. Really didn't do a darn thing. Even moved to Colorado, thought, oh man, it'd be great. I'm gonna go fishing, I'm gonna do all these things. Well, come to find out in the suburbs of Denver, no. The nearest can, river. You, you can fish for but, carp in like the viaducts or something, right? Yeah, carp. And there's a lot of lakes, but I don't have a yeah. boat. I'm not messing with all that. Yeah. So the nearest really good fishery is <laughs> like an hour and a half away. But my goodness, shoulder to shoulder people, mm-hmm. really, there's no etiquette that I could find. And I just was, I was good. Um, mm-hmm. So about five years ago, started really asking around about elk, asking my neighbors, hey, do you elk hunt? And a lot of them were like, you know, a couple of them, no, I don't do that. And then I found my neighbor, Mike, mm-hmm. <laughs> Mike around the corner. And he, he'd been hunting for a while and he started showing me some maps and showing me some areas. So then the same thing, when I got that drift boat, I just became unglued. I was just completely fascinated by how you do it. And at that point I wanted to kill a bull with a bow. Right. That was, this was like five to seven years ago. Yeah. About five years ago. Uh Yeah. Mm -hmm. Somewhere in there. Um, so Mike, um, you'll remember this well, but when got bought all the gear, got a nice bow, did all the things, laid it on the ground, took a picture and sent it. I said, guys, it's time. Well, I, I, I remember that specifically because, uh, for the listener, Ryan and I have a, uh, a group of friends that we share in common. And I was on a deer hunting trip with uh, those two guys down uh, near Riggins, Idaho. And we got this text at the one spot that we had reception of, I don't know if I want to say it on air and have it recorded so that your bride hears the amount of money that I figured was on the floor of your family room. But a large sum of very nice gear on the floor of Ryan's family room in a picture saying, it's time, this is it. And the other two guys I were with and myself looked at each other like, WTF is he talking about now? Like, needless to say, I I would classify you, Ryan, as a guy that jumps both feet into the swimming pool and you don't give a damn how deep or how cold the water is. You're going to make, you're going to try to float in it. Yeah, and that's what I did. Um, so admittedly, my very first year of elk hunting, I had a used, I bought it off Craigslist and had to meet this guy in an alley, PSE bow, arrows that I had no clue about anything, right? I paid like 300 bucks for the set. I probably got ripped off, didn't care, was super pumped. Yeah. Um, so long story short, maybe longer for another day, but my first elk hunting trip uh, dragged my neighbor along who didn't hunt, but just wanted to go. We were going to do this the way, right? The way I thought it was supposed to be done. And this is a really interesting topic for our listeners because mm-hmm. everybody has in their mindset of what it looks like to go elk hunting from a from a logistics perspective, 
right? There's kind yep. of the desert guys that are doing junipers and sage. There's the high alpine guys above tree line. There's the classic, you know, setup of a bull walking in on you in aspen groves. There's all mm-hmm. kinds of things. There's road hunters. There's multi-day backpacker guys. There's all these things. Well, I want it to be the multi-day backpack high altitude dude. So I did that. Mm-hmm. It was quite an adventure. Uh, long story short, three days, treacherous weather, you know, it was high up. So, and oh, this is my favorite too, timing, right? Timing. Well, so I'm reading just like all of you are and consuming all these wonderful podcasts and YouTubes and everything. So of course, what do you do? You're going to go for the 22nd of the month. That's this, that's the estrus. That's when all the, all the elk will be bugling, of course, and out in public and ready to go. Mm -hmm. Timed all these things out perfectly. I'm watching moon phases down to the Nats ass level detail. Yeah. We get up there, of course, it's snowing, it's miserable. We're in stupid little tents because we were trying to be cool and backpackers and all that. And um, went three days, solid, solid effort, hiking all over the place, didn't see or hear a darn thing. And then, uh, oh, might I remind you, on the drive up is when I decided to learn how to call. I mean, it seems totally reasonable. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming you you downloaded the Elknut app that we have. I wish I'd had it, Mike, because I might have had a chance, um, <laughs> but I, I didn't know anything. And that's actually a great point because I was searching, you know, again, this five years ago, a lot has yep. changed, but for good calling instruction, I didn't find stuff that I really liked. I couldn't find natural sounds of elk. I couldn't find things to emulate, but I also had no idea how to use a reed. Right. I had this reed, I had this tube, and on the drive up is when I'm trying to figure out how to use it. So we do the whole thing anyways. We come back after day four, 25 mile an hour winds. It's just awful. Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, we hike Hillendale and right by the tent, 300 yards across the valley is a bull. Mm-hmm. Super duper. So I'm a deer hunter at this point. I don't know what to do. I'm like I can't get to it because it's all scrub oak and awful things to go through. So I pop the reed in and I give that puppy a squeal. Sounds like a dying kangaroo. <laughs> Y'all been there, right? Gagging on that thing, (laughs) spitting all over the place. It's really difficult when you're first learning how to do this. Not to mention my heart's on my stomach, my adrenaline's to the roof, and I am (laughs) just squealing. Well, this bull, he's a raghorn, right? A little four by four. Absolutely turns around and comes to me on a line. I'm like defecating at this point. (laughs) He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. I'm like, oh my God, my neighbor's behind me with a hoochie mama because we don't know any better. All right, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and he didn't know how to call so he's of course sounding much better than i am right so out of behind us in the steep timber mr Herdbull hears all this commotion and comes out absolutely pissed oh so we God. are pinned between two bulls and they're out so this bull and this is when i learned <laughs> and had the most respect for these creatures because he's ripping through the woods running and i can't hear anything mm-hmm I can't hear his antlers knocking against trees. He's not hitting anything. So he finally shows up and he is one of those Cabela's bulls on the magazine, you know, which yeah. I grew up with. He's got big ivories. He's huge. He gets bigger every day, of course, but of course. So I knock I'm like, okay, I better knock. And guys, I hadn't shot broadheads before. It seems legit. Again, seems reasonable. Right? I mean, brand new elk hunter though. I mean, yeah, brand so, new stuff. You got you got your bow from a drug dealer in the back alley in Denver. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I got broadheads. I couldn't even, oh, I remember what they were. They were like these two and a half inch razor sheets, right? So well, yeah, I mean, the rumor is the longer the broadhead is, the bigger the hole that goes in the animal. So, I mean, I think things, you did that right. These things were wind sails. So, and I, I have no idea any of the grains find nothing, right? I'm just going right. to go for it, right? Yeah. Two feet all in. So this bull, I get him within the, the little guy, I get him within 20 yards. He's too thick. I'm at full draw. He never pops out. 30 seconds later, it's over. Didn't see anything for three more days. Finally bailed, got blown off the mountain. But that was my moment when I realized this is going to change my life forever. The and how many years after that did you go? Well, you didn't kill an elk there. No. You got close, right? Very close. How many years did you hunt elk fervently? I would describe it. I mean, it's it's an addiction, right? I mean, a good addiction. Yeah, it's an addiction. It's a healthier addiction. If if addictions can ever be good, this is a healthier one. That's a great way to put it. How long have, did you hunt elk before you killed one with your archery equipment? Four years. Four years. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and and a fun fact: if you ever read, Colorado had some documentation a while back that said the average archery elk hunter it takes them four years to kill their first elk. Well, I was like, I'm going to do that in two. Screw that. I'm going to yeah. beat that. Because you're average Joe plus. Because I'm plus. <laughs> and um, I didn't. So they were pretty accurate. And I put a lot of time and effort into it. So I felt really good about the time I killed my first elk with a bow. Mm-hmm. Mike, my first elk was with you. Yeah, your first elk was with me, right? After, what, three-ish years of not killing an elk and me putting the time in scouting and figuring things out. I, uh, You came up for an early season rifle hunt in Idaho somewhere. And uh, we met up and it was... It was a learning experience for me, never having guided somebody before, learned a lot about how to guide somebody, how I'm not built as a guide whatsoever. That's not in my makeup like yours, but it really seems like, and I think this is an important point for all the new elk hunters out there, all the people trying to get into the sport. Like for me, looking at your hunting trajectory from, you know, 1200 miles away shooting that elk was opening the proverbial floodgates for you with your elk experiences and everything else. I don't know if it was finally getting your hand on the animal, um, taking it apart, eating it, whatever. But it seems like since that moment, I'm hearing a lot of success stories from you. Yeah. And that, that broke the mold and it helped me break through a lot of the unknowns because Mm -hmm. I, looking back at all of it over the past few years, I thought about that moment when I shot that first elk. Mm -hmm. It was a hell of a shot for the listener. I'm going to interject here because it was a hell of a shot. So Ryan and his dad both came out to, to Idaho and they got, they got tags and and I was like, here, I'll help. And, and again, for the listener and Ryan and I have talked about this ad nauseum. I am not a guide. I it's too stressful. Like it, it's not my deal. And, uh, we hiked into this Canyon, this area and, you know, 
they're hunting and I'm kind of hanging with Ryan's dad talking a little bit. And all of a sudden, like the elk showed up and then the elk smelled us for a little bit or got spooked by us and disappeared. And Ryan, he went full on Rambo first blood part two and went up through the bush carrying this rifle his dad and I had no idea where the hell he was trying to communicate via text while you're stalking these animals. It was, it was one of the most badass situations I could have imagined because just the way you went up, took it, you literally went after him, but you went after him also, if I remember right from some advice from some of your older hunting buddies that you ran into in Colorado and had become friends with. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, for our listeners, guys, when it comes together, it comes together. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's the constant pursuit of information, right? So I'm fortunate where I live, I do have two or three elk hunters who are pretty avid, just listening, asking questions. And then the more you know, the more specific questions you can ask. So in this case, I had enough of a database to start applying what I heard, you know, through the heart pumping adrenaline and running up the steep hills and trying not to overthink things either. Mm-hmm. So one of the biggest pieces of advice I got, and you guys have seen this, if you've been in the elk is they don't, they don't really blow out unless they've really got your wind. If they got your wind, it's kind of over. You're done. They could even see you. And they're like, yeah. what in the hell's that thing? I mean, sight, they'll stand there until you move until you make the mistake. Sight is nothing. Um, yeah. Do this long enough. You will have encounters with elk within feet. I have had spikes, which kind of don't count because they're very curious. But do you know how good they taste? Well, here in Colorado, we're not fortunate enough to be able to do that. I know. The the wolves will get them for you you guys soon enough. On topic. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, just letting your intuition, your your Mm -hmm. actual hunter instinct come in with some basis of knowledge. Right. One of my fly fishing clients years and years ago. He he sat, we were sitting in the boat and he goes, you know what luck stands for? No. He's says labor under correct knowledge. That was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So having some of that knowledge, but then trusting your gut, putting in the labor, working hard. So yeah, being able to go up and go, okay, they're, they're here using your nose. You could smell them. They're here. And sure enough, I was presented with an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a, I, again, looking back at it, I think there was a lot of doubt in the details of killing one. I've killed animals before, but this is different. They're big. <laughs> um, and I think I was really nervous about processing these things in the field. I was, I didn't have the knowledge about how to pack one out. I didn't have that. You can look at it on YouTube all day long, mm-hmm. but there was this gap for me, I think. Um, and the year, two years prior, I did shoot my first bull with a bow, but unfortunately I was never able to recover him. Um, spent days looking and all those things and, um, you know, signed it over to the bears. Uh, that's a kick in the teeth, isn't it? It really was awful. So I think yeah, I had horrible that built up in my body too, in my mind of just like, man, I don't want to take a bad shot. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. So a lot of those things I think had more of a mental impact than I gave it credit for. Mm-hmm. Right. And again, field dressing a deer. Most of the time, guys, we shoot deer, we drag them off the mountain and throw them in the truck and take them home. Yeah. It's not rocket science. Right. Right. Then you can butcher that thing however you want when you get home <laughs> yep. or, or take it to a guy or whatever. Right. You, you don't have to know these things. Correct. 
so I had a really amazing opportunity to shoot this cow and and Mike did a one-on-one introduction about how to take it apart and what's this and what's that. Mm-hmm. So once I got over that hump, I had the, the an additional layer of knowledge and um, confidence. So I drove home, did a straight shot, put it in yep. the refrigerator, um, actually turned our basement fridge into a hanger. Hey, I I, I just recommended yep. that the other day. I, I saw that. I So my wife's amazing. So she like gutted it, figured out how to do these hangers so it didn't touch. It could hang perfectly. So we got the whole elk in there. And then four days, five days later, I turned around, ran up into the woods in Colorado and then shot an elk with a bow for the first time that I was able to recover. The proverbial floodgates are open. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I could have killed several more on that same trip, um, but I tagged out and it was pretty incredible. But that same year, a month later, yeah, October, um, went back into the hills with a rifle, had a first season rifle tag um, and shot another one. You know, it, it, there's immediately some listeners are going to be saying, I'm going to jump the gun here. What the hell is he going to do with three elk? Who eats three elk? <laughs> I can attest. I I. I can attest my family. I have a meathead son. Actually, I have two meathead sons. One's just eight. The other's 13. The eight-year-old eats way more. We can very easily eat every single animal we kill every year, which would equate to, let's say, two elk, two deer, a bear. This year, Mm -hmm. we threw some axes here. Eating through two or three elk when it is your primary source Mm -hmm. of protein is not it's not even a challenge. It's, it's completely doable and you're not like forcing meat down your gullet every night. So I just wanted to jump anybody in their head that are rolling their eyes in their car right now. It's it's a good call um, to say that because it is. And even I thought one elk, you know, had a box freezer. It was pretty full and put another one in there and it's like, Oh boy. Um, But it's true. And it's, it becomes like, it's become like currency for us. Right, I you guys. That. I love that. That's so guys, cool. That's true. Yeah, it, it is. So when I see a full freezer, I know I'm wealthy. Yep. And you guys know the cost of meat is continuing to go up, and it's getting to the point where it's absurd. I mean, yep. I have a, a doctor who buys elk. He's paying forty dollars a pound. Oh, isn't that crazy for farm raised elk? Right. So you start to do the math, and it's it's a it's a big pot of money in your pocket you're not having to yeah. spend we value the quality of the meat how it was harvested um all those things but caveat on the third elk that one was a mistake <laughs> so that one i had to give back to the wonderful state of colorado because i accidentally shot a bull now you thought, did your was there a cow behind the bull what did you not see his antlers how'd that go uh, I did everything right until I didn't. So I had a herd of probably 50 elk come over a knob. I was by myself. It was beautiful. Had mm-hmm. plenty of time. I got set up. Um, oh, by the way, yeah, another gun and weapon that I'd never shot before. <laughs> Super prepared. Seems seems appropriate for you. Though. You just got to go for it, man. Um, that, you know, <laughs> let Man, there are so many little nuggets in here, especially for a new or a couple year elk hunter or hunter in general. It, no truer words can be spoken when it comes to hunting. Like you just got to freaking go for it sometimes. I mean, it, it, I would I would advocate for shooting the rifle once or twice or releasing the bow a couple of times, trying to broadhead, but like 
who gives a damn if if you're experienced or not? You just gotta go. Yeah, and and I yeah, I echo what you said. Highly recommend the practice. I now I'm a very different hunter when it comes to mechanics sure. and, and and weaponry than I was. Uh, but it is what it is. Um, so my neighbor who I was, uh, he, he lent me the gun and I said, is it good? He goes, yeah, it's good. So I got, got it. So I had this herd. I waited, I waited, I didn't shoot into him. And then, um, finally I had a solo breakout. I was like, Oh, here we go. Breakfast. So lined up and the head was in the trees, but I thought I was watching a cow come down. So I'm watching, I'm with binoculars. I'm careful. I'm looking, I've got time. And sure enough, um, crack it walk over and there's the antlers so um feelings of uh, remorse uh wanted to throw up felt awful i literally sat next to it and just didn't know what to do so thankfully mm-hmm. i had a group of friends that came over the top and they said okay call it in because listener it's going through your mind and yeah it went through mine <laughs> who will know who will know there's not enough wardens to cover everything no and it was no no and no Mm-hmm. it's not the right thing to do and nope. if you do get caught it's not worth it um nope. and i will tell you the wardens and this may be another podcast for another day but the wardens were incredible they were supportive That's they so were awesome. they were even dispatch was impressed that i was calling over the carcass because i didn't know what to do so right. i finally had Sal at the top of the mountain I said, okay you know what do i do they're like break it down and take it off the mountain and we'll meet your campsite. That so is crazy. the wardens were texting me like, Hey, drop us a pin. And here I'm thinking, Oh, they're going to do a crime scene investigation. They want to see like, did I shoot it? No, they were coming up to help pack it off the mountain. It's amazing. So we didn't end up connecting. So my friend and I packed it out. <laughs> awful pack out snow, uh-huh. ice, downhill, miserable, blah, blah, blah. So we get to camp. We finally meet up with them. It was a two hour ordeal, but they were so appreciative of the honesty um they were very explanatory the whole thing um i got off with a small fine that i was able to pay in the field Mm -hmm. i got some points on my record so i gotta be careful Mm -hmm. Uh, but they it was it was honestly a great experience and the meat um and the antlers they drove around all the elk camps seeing if another hunter wanted to tag it that's awesome and i just thought to you know i said what a awful situation but a really valuable lesson and experience with the the you know um, Colorado, uh, fishing game. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, I did not have three elks worth of meat. Um, okay. but that to your point, Mike, once you kind of achieve your first kill, mm-hmm. I promise you guys, you will feel a whole new sense of confidence that will allow you to get into the field and be a much better hunter. Now, do you think that has to do with the confidence? I mean, I've heard it said time and time again, it, and I've had this long discussion about the power of like saying a prayer, right? Like, uh, you know, things are going bad, whatever, a bad situation just happened. Let's use a hunting situation. Like a gun dry fires a couple of times mm-hmm. and you stop, you step back, drop a few F-bombs, kick some rocks, tell the elk to go F themselves, you go over to another drainage, you get your calm, and then you say a prayer. It basically says like, hey, man, I effed up on that last one. Just give me one more chance. And people say like, bam, you know, the Lord opened up his hands and put another elk in front of me. And I've had this discussion with someone else said like, prayer or 
you set your intentions. Like yeah. you went out there, you know, when you have that prayer, when you have opening the floodgates, or whatever, you're really setting an intention for the most part saying like, this is the way it's going to be from now on. And I'm not saying that in a cocky way, but like you're working your ass off to make that happen. Now you've had the experience you're different. You've thought about it now and there's a floodgate that's open. And I mean, for the past couple of years, things have gone your way, brother. Yeah. And there's a lot to that. And it's no different than life. You have to will it. You have yep. to put it in the universe. You have to pray for it. You have to want it. Mm-hmm. You have to expect it. Yes. Raise your hands as you're driving. One hand on the wheel, please. <laughs> that have blown so many opportunities because we weren't expecting it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, well, I can remember them distinctly Two amazing bulls on public land, highly hunted areas that I'm all an ass home because I'm tired, I'm hot and miserable. And guess what? 10 yards to my right is a five by five staring right at me, just mm-hmm. eating aspens and having a ball. Mm-hmm. Um, just not being in that mindset. So it's expecting it. So if you're glassing, you expect to see something. Yep. Um, if you're calling, do your sequences. So the Elknot app, and this is, you know, I'm not getting paid for this yet. <laughs> Uh, zero, like that, just the, the level of, of applicability of that to the waiting game and you hear all kinds of different, um, elk hunters talk about this, but the call and wait being patience, Mike, you know, I'm not patient. I'm awful. Yeah. Yeah. I will waiting five minutes in the elk woods with a bow in my hand is like hours for me. So so let me, uh, let me interject here. You and I, (laughs) when we, when we elk hunt, when I used to elk hunt, it was, you know, maybe I'm going for a 16 mile hike and like, I'm hiking, I'm not hunting, I'm hiking. And I remember you, uh, another little tidbit in regards to that our listeners should keep in mind, you're hunting, not hiking. Well, you're not in a race to the end of the trail to get back to the car, walk slow, listen, hear things, smell things, take your time, hunt, yeah. don't walk. And as you said, you know, you're, you expect it to happen. And I wanted to interject there, but when you're done, there's a big difference between confidence and cockiness. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a fine line between the two, but once you've mastered being confident and not cocky, there is a huge difference. I feel like the hunter, every time the hunter goes out, they need to be confident that it's going to happen. That's setting that intention, knowing there are animals around you and you know, as well as I do, a lot of times there ain't a damn animal anywhere near you, but you have to know they're near you, right. To be prepared for that, as opposed to being cocky and, and stomp in there and step on every branch and sound like Captain Crunch going down the trail and stuff like that. Um, but I remember you telling me one time you're hunting, not hiking, walk yeah, like and, in the older crowd that I tap into. They're like, I told them, you know, I'm so proud. I'm like, oh, I had 12 miles that day and this mile, that blah, blah. I mean, one trip, we did five days and 80 miles. And they're like, cool. You just walked by probably a hundred elk. Yeah. What do you mean? I didn't hear them. I didn't smell them. They weren't responding to my calls. What are you talking about? It's impossible. Like, no, you walked by a lot of elk. And that's so true. So I changed a lot from my first hunting trip, which is a backpacking extraordinaire, which I still love to do, mm-hmm. to I would rather take all day to hunt four miles 
Mm-hmm. As long as I know I have a pretty good chance that there's elk in the area, right? You also need to know when to pull up and get out and move drainages, move ridges, do something. Because obviously they're probably within a few miles, but not where you are. Correct. Well, Ryan, I want to I wanna fast forward just briefly because you had a pretty amazing season last season. Um, I remember, I'm going to pre- preface the story for the listener. I was sitting by a wallow eating a can of pre-made tuna, you know, the, the bumblebee tuna oh, love that that's pre-mixed with some crackers. Uh, another pro tip for the listener that's beginning. Those are the best things in the world to have in your pack because you're not eating trail mix or dried fruit or anything else. You're eating protein like tuna fish on saltines. It's freaking awesome. Right. But I remember sitting there and I got the picture of what you had done that day. And on our group text, and I was just like, holy shit, look at that. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so that was probably day, full day 20 in September. So I committed a lot of time and I was hell bent. And I'll just slight backstory. Um, the weekend before I'd finished up, I don't know, 10 or 12 days of hunting in a row had plenty of action. We had lots of good experiences. Got my dad with a five by five staring right at him at 60 yards Had cows. It was good. It was all good. Mm-hmm. So I had one more day or whatever. I bomb out to my spot, get set up an hour before dark in the, like forest. you had like one more day for the season. I remember you well, left this, your suburban so this was, home. This was the weekend before. Oh, so okay. I'm, the weekend before I want to share the failure. I want to interrupt the podcast for a minute and talk about the cut right mobile app. The Cutright mobile app is a passion project between myself and Got Game Tech. A couple years ago, we came up with the idea of bringing an app to the hunting nation that describes all aspects of field dressing an animal, butchering an animal, and cooking an animal so that all the information is in the palm of your hand. You don't have to rely on YouTube, on downloaded videos, on trying to remember what you saw one time by some random guy from Kentucky on a YouTube video at midnight. The information is accessible, well-organized, and always available as you can download all the videos onto your phone. So when you're deep in the mountains chasing that bugling bull or sitting in your tree stand ready to release the arrow on a trophy buck, you can be assured that those videos are downloaded to your phone so when you walk up onto your kill, you're not going to waste any meat and you're going to honor it as best as you can. In addition, we wanted to make sure that every hunter out there has the ability if they choose to butcher their own game. So we went through step by step all of the cuts on the front quarter, the hind quarter, and how to butcher them off of those quarters. Not only did we do that, but we described what each of those cuts are going to be best used for and supplied currently 32 recipes. And I'll be honest with you, I have about 52 to 54 more recipes in the hopper that I'm hoping to get onto the next major update of the app. This really is the only digital tool you need in your kill kit. And even if you know what you're doing with your animal in the field, it's the only digital tool you need to walk you through how to butcher your own animal. Save six, $700 off of getting your meat butchered for you and do it yourself. 
After a couple animals, you'll be able to get it done in about two to three hours. And with our step-by-step -step guide going through each cut on each quarter, it's going to be a lot easier than you think. Check out the CutRight mobile app wherever you find your apps. The App Store, the Google Play Store, whatever. Leave us a review. We'll check it out. And we'll make improvements based upon what you want to see in the future. And now, back to the podcast. Oh, Before okay. Fair enough. Okay. So I had finished up this long stint. Um, elk camp was gone. I was by myself and I had gotten into the biggest, most amazing elk frenzy of my life. They're running. I could see their silhouettes running through the, you know, before the sun came up, bugles, herd bulls, trees were just being demolished that I could see a hundred yards out, 10 yards out. I, I feel like I could just shoot a hundred arrows and kill them all, but it ended. It was over. It was gone. I had zero shots. Nobody was coming to me. They're herded up hard. They're bugling at me, but no play. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting down. The adrenaline finally comes out. I'm sitting on this log, <laughs> having a snack. And I look over and this cow walks in on me at 30 yards. I'm like, oh, okay. kind of gives you the, the cockeyed, like, yep. she, what, she, what you doing here? He looked right at me and didn't care. And I'm like, all right, I'm tagging out. I'm going home. This is phenomenal. I slowly do my process. I get knocked. I'm up. I draw. It's a 30, 35 yard pin. And I sail it right over back. And so I'm like, okay, what happened? So I knock again and she's out maybe 40 yards, but she's not running. She's not going anywhere. Again, like we talked about earlier, right? She hadn't smelled me. So she didn't care. She watched that arrow. Didn't even move. So she sauntered, like barely meanders five yards ahead. She might be at 45, 40 yards, excuse me. Yeah. I sail another one in front of her. No contact. All right. Um, so she's probably same yardage in front of me. Broadside. I miss a third time. The hand of God was on that cow. He so wanted I, her to live. I had three shots at the same cow and I blew all of them. So I called my wife. I said, man, I just missed the cow. My season's done. I'm coming home. It was a great year. I'm super stoked. I'm coming home. Okay. So I get home. Thursday of that week, I have three more days to hunt. So I said, I got to go. I got to go. It's too good. I'm not, I can't, I can't quit now. So I tell her, Hey, I'm good. You good. I'm good. She's good. Okay. Get back in the car. This time I had to do some work, get caught let, up. Let, let's applaud your wife though. She just had the elation that <laughs> yeah. my, my husband is coming home. He is ending his season. You said those fateful words. I am done. Yep. You came home. You were there. You probably had the ants in your pants, a little bit of anger, no amount of chew or beer was going to take care of that anger and just kind of bouncing off the walls. And she, in her head, you were coming back fulfilled from a season in the woods, yeah. but in your head, you're pissed off. Like, and then you are also like, shit, I got three more days. Yeah. So now you have to break it to her. Hey, psych, I'm actually leaving again to go hunt. Yeah. And we did the schedule check. I said, are you cool if I go back up there? You know, I'll probably leave whatever Friday and yada, yada, yada. She's like, go. And and I will say my wife is incredible. Um, yeah. So if if you and Mike, there's another three hour podcast on this coming <laughs> about how to get that level of partnership and credibility. It does not yeah. happen overnight. Right. Nope. I, we will I schedule that for another time. Because I can't that is true. that enough. Um, so got the green light. 
left here at 10, three-hour drive, four-hour drive, meow, right drive through the night, squinty-eyed, pulling into where I was going to pull off at whatever, one, two in the morning. There's a bull in front of the road. And I'm like, the gods are smiling. <laughs> you know, So I get to my spot, sleep for a couple hours, get up, get in the woods. The elk woods are dead. They're dead. It's over. <laughs> like, just out of my mind. Oh, my goodness. So here I am, Mike, going, you know what? It's Friday. I got a call at nine o'clock. I could get back, take the call, and then I'll have the evening and be fine. I remember you and I were actually texting <laughs> yeah. during this time. I remember so this. I, I'm me. I'm beginning <laughs> to meander. I take maybe 10 steps heading back towards home. I'm like, I'll just do one more bugle. Right. So this this is the theme you will hear about from a lot of hunters. One more. Same with fishermen, right? We had some oh, one, one last one cast. cast, one more ridge, one more bugle. So this was one more bugle. And I had two bulls hit it right away. One of them was not playable too far and on private property. The other one is like right up the steep hill and playable. Yeah, he's probably a couple hundred yards out. And I'm like, oh my goodness. So I haul ass, completely full tuck run up the hill, get into some cover. I just had a feeling. I was like, I got to play this. So I bugle again. Hits it back, boom, boom, boom. So I'm solo, right? So for those of you who guys who have questions about solo versus partner or group, I've done both. Um, I I do a lot of most of the animals I've killed have been solo. Mm-hmm. So I'm solo. I know I need to throw the call. So I'm turning around, throwing bugles behind me. Then I'm looking up the hill. I have to. I'm. A, I have some heavy cover over me to the point where I kind of have to crouch, and I kind of crouch, and I look. And I see hooves coming down this steep, um, so this north-facing slope. They're up there doing their thing. He's coming out. Mm-hmm. And I see hooves, and I go, oh, my gosh, right? So you can imagine what my heart's doing, what my brain's doing, oh, yeah. all the things. Um, so at this point, he's coming in, and he hangs up probably 75 yards. And it's wide open, except for this knob of trees that I'm in. So, mm-hmm. again... For those of you guys exploring those hang-up positions, those safety corridors, all these things, none of it was there. So I thought he was going to hang right there, and I was toast. Right. So I did what you probably shouldn't do, and I bugled at him one more time. Turned around hard, full turnaround, carefully, and then he turned into a different bull. He was screaming at me, absolutely pissed. I, I cannot tell you seeing his full antler breath. I remember seeing horns and I remember seeing four on one side. So I knew I was legal. I'm going in. So he's, he starts to come down and I knock. This dude immediately goes to check my wind. Circles. He's all the way around this knob, 30 yards, stops halfway. So now he's 20 yards, but I don't have a shot. And he bugles again. So the earth is shaking with him. He's full throttle Mm -hmm. and it's deep. So again, I still don't remember the antlers. Don't care. So he comes around and he is going for my wind and I am just sweating bullets. I'm like, no, no, no. I need to stop him. I need to stop him. So I had a shot at about 40 yards. It was too thick. I wasn't going to make it. So I turn slowly, slowly with him and he can't see me. I turn and I draw. 
he goes, if you can imagine a wind line, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a mm-hmm. line for that. At this point, I'm probably working with a thermal. Um, there's a line. And for some reason, he stopped before he got to that wind line. Like just before it or good yeah, ways? just before, because he did not catch it. Ugh. I'm ready for the um, like operation. He's going to smell yeah. the wind. I'm going to call him back. Right, I already had plan B and C ready to go. Sure. He hits the line, turns around and goes back up the hill. So, you know, he takes two or three steps, another two or three steps. And I have a triangle between aspens and fallen branches, probably 12 inches. So guys, if you ever shoot tack or any kind of competition shooting in the woods, this is what that training's for. So he peels around, I stop him and I let it fly at 35 yards. So that point, I didn't hear the thwack. Didn't hear the the arrow going through watermelon. Couldn't hear anything, did not, couldn't process anything, right? Totally overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. Um. So I sat down and I think that's when I maybe texted you yep. and I texted my friends and said, okay, bull, bull hit. <laughs> right. Question, uh, mark. question. So I give it 15 minutes and I just take the 35 yards to go see where the arrow impacted. And I found one single tiny pin of a pin drop of blood on a green sh- blade of grass. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we have contact. So I sat and I'm texting my dad and I'm like, he's like, just sit, just sit, be patient. Let that bull die. My friends are all virtually looking at maps to see where he might've gone just in case. Yeah. So I waited two hours. Now it was a warm, warm late September day. Mm -hmm. So I panic. I don't know why I panicked, Mike. I shouldn't have. I immediately, I knew kind of where he went, but most animals when they're hit are going to go downhill. Mm-hmm. So I went downhill. I went like 300 yards low just to see if I could pick up anything. Thankfully, I did that because I picked up his scent. Mm-hmm. So I walked up um, and he had died within 200 yards of where I shot him. Awesome. Right on the game. That's trail. awesome. So it was pretty exhilarating. Um, but that two hours sitting in full sun, he didn't die in the shade, unfortunately. Mm hmm. And then the rest of the story is really kind of where we can go with what happens to meat if you don't take great care of it. Well, I was just going to say, I'm I'm assuming the the legs on the upside of that animal, not against the ground, were were fairly okay. But I imagine the ones that he was laying on, there was some some meat spoilage. Yeah. So I got up to him. Um, he was a wonderful, very unique um, six by seven. Oh, listener, uh, the, the the picture t- for this podcast is Ryan's bull. I took a picture of it when I was at his house. So that the picture that you see that I posted on Instagram about this, this podcast, that's Ryan's bull that he killed yeah. last year. It was 300 inch first archery bull, correct? Yep. First archery bull, um, super unique. He's got antlers and things all over the place. He has a 22 inch downward sloping eye guard. Um, he's very unique. Uh, he, in all- Ryan's going to give you all these numbers and they ain't going to mean shit. It's a badass looking bull on a great mount, man. It's well, let's awesome. be clear. That's the, that's the extent of my antler knowledge. Cause I am not a horn hunter. <laughs> you guys are like, well, it's G fives and his tips. And is this I'm like, I don't know what any of that is. Like, I, I just make it look awesome to put on my wall, please. Yeah. <laughs> taxidermist. I'm like, 
so how big do you think this is? They're like, I so they had to, you know, I was like, I don't really care. So you had mentioned that this bull, um, you lost some meat. So yeah. talk about that. Did you like, how'd you know it was bad? Did what happened? So I opened it up and everything was fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will tell you guys, Mike and his knowledge um, and, and the knowledge instilled in the cut right app is what helped me process that bull by myself. And he was rigged out hard, rigor mortis. So that, that is also a significant challenge. Mm-hmm. You will also see no pictures of him in the field with me. I could not get anything. Um, so I did really well um, with the Good. basics. Thanks to Mike's uh, tutelage. Um Everything smelled good. Everything was fine. So mm-hmm. probably took me three hours, got everything hung, um, started moving him into the shade, got him into a spot. I knew I could do a good, you know, leapfrog and start packing mm-hmm. him out. Everything was fine. Um, I had to leave him overnight. I was exhausted and couldn't, couldn't take another step. Um, it rained that evening, but it was cool. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay, that should be all right. Yeah. I think that'd be fine. So did all things got him home or put him in, I got a nice big cooler, put him on ice. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until, okay, I got home. And I think Mike, this is where one of my bigger mistakes came from. Okay. It, it was warm, <clears throat> but not hot. And I have a giant fan and I wanted to get a crust on that meat. I wanted to age it a little bit for at least mm-hmm. a couple of days. I okay. like processing meat that has that little bit of crust on there. Yep. Um, so a couple of days go by and then, you know, my neighbors show up to start processing and doing everything. And as soon as we started cutting into pieces of it, it smelled rancid. Now, when you left it on the, in the bag with the fan on it, you did not, or in the field, you did not like cut between that bottom round and top round or Correct. between the bottom round and sirloin tip just to the bone to open the bone, right? You, you left that that meat hole on that hind quarter and in well front quarter, whatever, but like the hind quarter, correct. In that Mike, I knew better. Mm-hmm. I knew to do that, but I didn't think it was that. Right. Warm. You didn't think it was that. Right. No, no. And I, I, and I will tell you listener, what happens to your brain when you're post kill post breakdown is to me, it deteriorates. I'm fatigued. Mm-hmm. I am tired. I'm exhausted. You're not thinking clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, you're dehydrated almost every single time. You're not getting food, right? I mean, I didn't eat anything that day. I just so went. this is this is a this is a great topic because there's a few things that I think every person should have in their kill kit besides you know the knife and the zip ties and and flagging tape and stuff like that. And, and I put it in starting about four years ago when I had a couple of those instances, a couple packs of like hydrate and recover or bio steel or powdered Gatorade or something, because you know, if you see it, you'd be like, Oh shit, that's right. I got to drink that as well as some level of nutrition, even if it's a bar before you start the breakdown of your animal, just say, it's so important. That's just one of those little things that, because if it's not there and I'm guessing from your story, it wasn't there. So you saw it and you're like, let's go time to go three painstaking 
crack soap sweat soaking hours later you're done and you probably took a drink of water through one little piece of a granola bar in your mouth and you're like oh shit now i gotta hike this thing out a couple miles yeah and so you're you're in a bad way and i and i was in a particularly bad spot um i'd just been hunting so hard all september yeah. it was the last day again probably 20 plus days yeah and yeah it was so i recognized that and um so you just make a lot of little mistakes right mm-hmm. I know mm-hmm. next time I'm going to eat something I'm going to drink, especially before your hands get all bloody and dirty. Right. Right. Just take the extra two minutes. Yeah. It will save a lot of mistakes. And yeah. I mean, it could even save your life because once you start putting the weight of an elk on your back and sometimes those temperatures of the high mountains, it's mm-hmm. a joke. Absolutely. So you so get you home, have, this meat's home. hanging, you yep. and your buddies cut it. It smells like a bum's butthole or what are we dealing Not with here? How right. do you know it was rancid? This, this is what's interesting. So you're saying, you know what a bum's butthole smells like? Well, we did hang out a few times. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> so, it smells a lot like soured milk. Ah, that's, it's great. Yeah. That's a good analogy. You're right. It's, it's soured. It's soured something. It's just sour. Right. Okay. Um, like it's almost like lemon and milk or something put together. Mm-hmm. It's gross. Um, yes, it was. Yeah. Um, so immediately, you know, and even when meat's great, I love putting my face in it and smell it. Right. It mm-hmm. has just amazing qualities to it. So we're smelling everything. At this point, we'd butchered everything. So we have our grind piles. We have our steak piles. We have our roast piles. We've got, and we're just. So you butchered smelling. this whole animal after yep. in the initial cut. Yep. You or one of your buddies was like. And this smells horrible. And you're like, F it, cut it up anyway. Or was it kind of like, so you, you were like, don't tell me it's lost. We're doing this damn thing, period. My my really good friend and I started really questioning it. We we're like, no, no, this is not good. Something's wrong. Yeah. And then our, our like classic um, baby boomer hunter friend, uh-huh. like, nah, it's fine. I love it. <laughs> Just eat it. You'll be fine. So what if you shit through a screen door for a week? You're okay. It was. It was very much so like, you'll be fine. It's just a little gamey. You're going to be great. So we're like, okay, that's fine. So we start packaging and then I get to a grind pile and it's huge, right? I mean, this Mm -hmm. is a good example. I'm probably looking at 50 pounds of meat. And I get in there again and I smell it and I pull my friend over. I'm like, dude give this a whiff. He's like, no, it's not okay. So the first 50 pounds went right into the trash and we are just, and we're crying it out. Not really, but we're super sad. We're just devastated that we're doing this, um, putting that level of effort into getting this meat and just the respect we have for the animals was Mm -hmm. devastating. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I started doing some research. So we packaged everything up. We got it on ice. We got it in the coolers just to prevent any more loss. I started doing research. Let me ask a question as you started doing research. You take the sirloin tip off, right? Like the football roast. And you smell it. And you're like, that smells like baby vomit. That is (laughs) not good. (laughs) At any point, and this isn't like, I'm not trying to be derogatory, but at any point, did you say, you know what? I'm going to cut this top half inch off meat of meat off and Mm -hmm. then re-smell it. Did you go through that whole process? Because 
The way that I've dealt with soured meat and I've unfortunately lost meat. Um, oftentimes for me, it comes on the bottom round because Mm -hmm. that's insulated by the ground and the animal. And I end up slicing about third to half inch slices of meat all the way off that bottom round. And then just put that back up in my face. I'm like, Nope, still rancid. Take another slice until it smells non-rancid. Once I get to that non-rancid point, I'm like, okay, that's good to go now. So did you try that method? We didn't go that far to cutting off layers because I, what the logic was is we had cut up all that grind Mm -hmm. and we were smelling pieces and pieces and pieces and middles and outsides. So that might be something to try, especially, you know, if you're in this, you know, listeners, if you're in this situation, because again, hindsight, I wish we would have known some more things like this. Mm -hmm. Um, But what was interesting is a lot of it smelled wonderful, just like elk meat should. Mm -hmm. Here's the other problem. You know, again, spoilage is going to happen. Yes. We weren't paying attention and we mixed them. Oh, God, you mixed the good stuff with the bad stuff? Yes. So listeners, you're shaking your head and cursing at me. That's fine. I didn't know any better. Because we weren't smelling everything all the time, right? Trying to get through 300 pounds of meat. Um, yeah, it's a big animal, man. It, it crossed. So then we were like, man, is it, now do we cross contaminate? Did it get blah, blah, blah. So I started doing some research. Um, cause I don't want to throw this away. My main question was, is this going to make me sick? <laughs> According to the internet, Mike, <laughs> a certain level of soured meat, spoiled meat will not make you sick. It is just not very palatable. Now I'm going to pause there because <laughs> You're an actual expert. <laughs> Tell me what level of risk, knowing the elk is now gone and we ate a lot of it, what risk did I expose my family to? <laughs> I, I, more than a little, little bit less than significant. Uh, so it's not the bacteria. You, the multiple problems here that exist with eating soured meat, it's bacteria that are causing that meat souring, right? Kind of like when you get a sour beer, it's a different kind of bacteria that produce that sour flavor. You're getting the sour smell, the milky baby vomit, which is really the most accurate description I've. (laughs) You should get a t-shirt that says that. (laughs) Don't let your meat become milky baby vomit. (laughs) That would sell, right? (laughs) Anyway, um, so when you cook it, you're not going to cook it. I mean, in I've seen pictures of the meat you cook and our other friend said, you were like, how's this look, this look, or this looks delicious. And he responded with delicious hell. I could still hear it mooing. Like, cause it was so rare. Like there is no way in hell I would eat spoiled meat that rare. Right. I would not eat it the way I would. If I knew I had spoiled meat and I was going to eat it, it would immediately go to burger and it'd be, you know, it'd be Salisbury steak or very well-cooked burgers with a bunch of cheese on it. So Cooking it well, right? It basically unpalatable for most people. Game meat can't be cooked well in the steak or rose form. You're going to get rid of all the bacteriums that are in there. But mm-hmm. the problem is they can also release toxins into the meat that don't necessarily cook off um, when you cook that spoiled meat. So you are potentially... And I don't know, it depends on what kind of bacteria are in it, but potentially introducing toxins from these bacteria and from cooking these bacteria into the people that eat the meat. Like I said, I would classify it as more than a little 
but less than significant. I, I think you'd be fine. I just, I don't know if I could do it. Just knowing that it smelled like milky baby vomit. Yeah. Well, first of all, that was a very lawyer esque answer. Um, as to my <laughs> risk level. Hey. hey. So here, here's the the proof is in the pudding. We're alive. <clears throat> yep. Sick. Now, you know, a couple of years from now, if we grow a third arm, fine. We'll talk about it. <laughs> that could be any number of things over the past few That's years true. that caused that, though. That's true. <laughs> um, but ultimately, we were okay. Okay. Uh, and we did, I implemented a lot of different cooking techniques to kind of cut through that because mm-hmm. I, again, this was our meat. This is our currency. Did right? you eat any of that the way you like to eat meat? Like, did you like eat any of it rare or raw, not raw, but um, like medium so rare? This, this, so every time I get a piece out of the freezer, yep. I open the bag and I smell it and that's going to dictate what I do. Okay. So, now, so, so the direct answer to that is no, you didn't eat it rare or medium rare for the most part. Right. Some of the pieces that you open them up and it's just beautiful and I'm doing what I would do. Yes. I would cook okay. it properly, but if it had a little funk to it, a lot of it went into the pressure cooker with a lot of different vinegars and acids. Okay. <laughs> I, with that, you're fine. You're fine. Yeah. I would, I'd be making a bunch of barbacoa. I'd be making yeah. shredded so we, elk. We I did. did. Yeah. We did a lot of barbacoas and then we did a lot of the like Greek style, right? Oh with yeah. Yeah. Heavy lemons. Like I sent you some of those pictures. Oh with man. The they look great. They yeah, great. you know, the kids did fine with it. My wife did fine with it for the most part. There were a couple of times we were like, I'll go get some chicken. This is going in the trash. Like it was funky. seriously funky. Um, but yeah, it was a really good learning experience. And again, that's that's the the value of having a friend sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. We could have carefully walked our way into the woods in different directions. That bull was probably dead in 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but you, you know, know i didn't want to bump him i didn't yeah, want he's to... gonna say yeah it's it just you know it's common accepted hunting etiquette like you shoot a bull at least half an hour 45 minutes with the arrow unless unless you see that damn thing fall over and roll yep. down right yep. you're gonna wait but you know it i think it's inevitable in warm september years or months or even you know, Oregon opens middle of August for, for elk. I, if you arrow an animal or shoot an animal with a boom, boom stick, whatever you prefer, I don't really care the method to take. And it takes you two or three hours to find it. There is going to be meat spoilage. Mm-hmm. There is, there's no way around that. I, maybe your nose is not trained to that. Maybe you've never had the joy of having your child vomit on your shoulder. So you don't know the smell Ryan and I are talking about, but stick your nose in there. And if it doesn't smell like just damn good meat, there's spoilage. And so the way I would deal with spoilage and, you know, this is for future reference for you, because I know you're going to have another successful year. And if you kill one and it's hot out and it takes a few hours to find it, or you kill one and it's cold out and it has to sit for 20 hours because you have to come back the next day. You're going to lose meat. Smell the surface of that meat. I mean, dig down in and I, you'll open the bone now. And for the listener, the reason that we say cut down like that bottom round of sirloin tip or top round of sirloin tip seam to get to the bone is because the bone is the metabolically active part. So the bone retains a lot of heat. So if you imagine those muscles, when that animal dies, that blood flow ceases to there, but that bone is still hot. So the heat is radiating out from that bone going through the muscles. 
So the idea is if you slice down and expose that bone to air, it's going to cool the part of the muscle near the bone, right? But when you get that rancid piece of meat, whether it's a round or sirloin tip, smell it and not shave it, but like cut a half an inch off. Yeah. You're looking at that and you're like, oh my God, I just cut a pound of bottom round out. Well, the bottom round is 17 freaking pounds. It's not that much meat you're losing. And then smell it again. And you may say like, at you know the top part of the bottom round, you're like, oh, that was enough. But down in the middle, it's still funky. So then you take a little divot out of the middle, wherever that funk is, try to cut it out. Because once you cut it out, the rest of the meat is totally fine. That bacteria and that nastiness has not sunk all the way through it. Does that make sense? Well, it's good to know. Oh yeah, for me, hundred um, percent. It's good to know. And and again, I hope to not have you know, nearly the severity and making kind of a compilation of mistakes Mm -hmm. led to that. Um, And if you have any doubt, get it home as fast as you can. Don't do the things I did, like trying to hang it for a little bit longer and all the things, get it home, get it processed and take care of it. So we're going to coming out pretty soon. I'm going to talk about the merits of aging. And I think you were privy to this, but you don't need to age your wild game prior to freezing it. You can age it after freezing. And I've hinted at this before, but like Ryan, you could take that top round, which is in my opinion, one of the most versatile cuts of meat on the animal. And you're like, no, I want that crust. I want it to age, but you could risk losing it. You can freeze it, pull it out, you know, three weeks ahead of time and dry age it after it's been frozen. And you get that same tenderness and flavor profile and co- co- condensing of the flavor down into the small as you would prior to freezing it. Um, so that, that, that's huge. I mean, that changes everything. It right? does. It, it, I, especially I really, if you have multiple tags. Yeah. The dry aging process to me is very interesting. I mean, I did a front quarter for 30 days. Yeah. My goodness. And it's such a wonderful experience and just the yep. flavor is so different. Um, it's so different. You lose a lot of meat, but you what you gain is if you have, you know, the cuts that I did were 500 grams. And after the dry aging, those cuts were about 313 to 320 grams. So a third of that meat was lost, mm-hmm. but you take all of the flavor of the lost meat and condense it down. So you, you, the bites of meat that you're getting with dry aging are I mean, they're flavor bombs, man. Right. I mean, that's the only way I can put it. They're flavor bombs. So let me ask a question. Cause I know your time is running thin. You got, uh, your entrepreneurial spirit. You have another meeting coming up here. Having, uh, gone from zero elk to hero elk on your wall. Um, top three things that you would give advice to, the new or couple year elk hunter that is still struggling. Like if you could narrow it down to three, the three most important things for them to keep in mind or how to act or whatnot this elk season, what would you say those three things are? So this one's a bit controversial because there's two types of hunters. There's Mm -hmm. the highly technical and analytical hunter. And then there's the sort of, what I'll call more like my style, a little bit more of the, I'm just going to go figure it out. Right. I'm just going to get jumping in that pool and I don't give a shit how cold and deep it is. Yeah. You want to ask me about the spines of my arrows? I'm not going to know anything. Well then. Um, So what I 
would highly recommend, even for the most technical detail-oriented hunter, is don't over-rotate. Don't overthink everything. Keep it as simple as possible for you. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of um, truth to just showing up and letting your intuition and letting your practice, you need to practice everything, right? Mm -hmm. I will definitely Mm -hmm. say that's important, but let your kind of repeatable muscle memory for your bow drawback or your squeezing of the trigger for your rifle, Mm -hmm. your calling, keep it simple. Um, For calling, the uh, application for keep it simple is elk don't actually sound like what you think they sound like. They yeah. don't sound like really anybody on YouTube. No. They do not sound clear and polished. You have to think of it as elk or just as individual as humans. The people on YouTube sound better than any elk I've ever heard. 100%. They're beautiful. Elk yeah. don't always sound like that. No. So my my experience of that story I told you of that young bull I called in sounding like a dying kangaroo, mm-hmm. my proof. Now, Young bull, sure. Is in my would I have the skills to call in a giant herd bull? No, not at that level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he still came, right? And it wasn't an elk call; it was a garbled reed, right? Um, is having that confidence just to make some of that noise, but don't don't beat yourself up for perfection. Mm-hmm. Just jump in and go for it. Um, don't over rotate either on all the arrows and all the stuff, unless you really love. If you love it, go for it. Yeah. But my if you favorite have the time and the, the energy to do it, go for sure, it. Sure. Absolutely. Knock yourself out. But I, an older guy I talked to, another one, they're my favorite. I was doing that stuff. Well, what about your FOC and what about this and your blah, 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 blah. He's like, listen here, Sonny, you can kill an elk with 35 pounds of draw weight with a field point as long as you do an accurate shot. And, and that's pretty damn true. I, I mean, it's not. It's not legal. It has to be at least like 45 pounds, but that's hundred well, percent true. Colorado's like 35 pounds, man. Oh my gosh. Don't quote really? me on that listeners, but it's pretty low. <laughs> so the point is accuracy. Yep. And then take your time with all those things. Second point is again, I'm working on it, but it has paid off dividends. The better I get at, it, which is patience. So there's a, uh... on my closing day last year, and I actually went through my phone to find the text from last September 29th that you sent me. Cause I wanted to quote what text you sent me. And there was a thing and it said, believe in strategic patience. And I've never heard that before. And it resonated. And I got into good bulls the last two days of the season last year, because I believed in strategic patience. So for me, you add the word strategic to anything, it's auto- automatically better. Because um, <laughs> patience, patience is a virtue is worthless for me. So should we go out and do some strategic beer drinking next time I'm in Colorado? Does yeah. it sound better to say that? Yes. So strategic <laughs> patience is having the knowledge that you think or have evidence that there are elk around you. Mm-hmm. Thing that you're in an area where you have an opportunity to either have them come, you know, an encounter, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you you watch them or or a trail or whatever, um, and having patience. This last year was a year I implemented more strategic patience than ever, and the dividends were unbelievable. Love it. Um, so challenge yourself to be more patient, um, especially if you have a bull or a critter 
don't care. Again, I, I chase cows. If a bull shows up, great. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't rush it. Just let it all happen. Let it unveil. They don't have a schedule. You do. Right. So right. Throw your schedule in the trash and be in the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, the last one is challenge yourself on how you want to hunt. Right. So my dream of hunting elk was again backpacking high alps, blah, 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 blah. While it could have been successful, the, you gotta think, man, the pack out, <laughs> it's different. The elements you're exposing yourself to. Um, and then the type of terrain. If if you love it, hunt there. I know plenty of guys who are successful, kind of quasi road hunting. You can't shoot out your car, but like some guys are good at that. Some yeah. guys do 20 mile backcountry, yada, yada, yada. Um, the value of elk camp, I can't express enough. Um, mm-hmm. I dismissed that early on, but that is a mentally recharging yep. way to keep you stable in the field because yep. I've had plenty of mental breakdowns out there. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. As In regards to that topic of, you know, you have your picturesque ideal place. Reminds me of that Mike Tyson quote, like everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? Like, Go ahead, hunt your idyllic place. Try to shoot that elk at, you know, 12,000 foot on a cliffside near a scree slope and stuff. And then, like you did, give me a call and say, hey, are those elk in that area? Have you patterned those elk? And I can come shoot them with a rifle in August because I really need to open the floodgates. And, you know, you got to hunt them where they're at, right? Mm -hmm. you, You can't hunt them where you want them to be. You have to hunt them where they are. Yeah. <clears throat> so it's it's kind of um I guess the the main takeaway too here is find an area where you know elk to be mm-hmm. and put all your all your time in that area to know every nook, cranny, basin, bowl, bush, watering hole. Um I don't care if there's a million people in there or if there's not a ton of elk, if you if you know it really really well and I'm quoting Remy Warren here. It's one of my favorites. I was just going to say your that's this is a Remy he, quote. He he has inspired me um to have that level of confidence too to just hang in there, keep at it, pick a spot and don't give up on it, right? I love it. I love it. You're better off to know one spot like the back of your hand than 10 spots like very little. Yeah, I mean right now Colorado's changing a lot of our over-the-counter units to limited licensing. It's pushing a lot of guys into new territory. It's pushing people, you know, frankly, that kind of levels out the playing field in a lot of situations. Right. Um, but every time, like, you know, I've gotten bumped out of some areas, it's like, crap, man. Yeah, it's exciting to go learn it all, but it, it takes two or three years. Oh, yeah. Easily. We're able to hunt, right? Which may be two days a year, 10 days a year, right? Man, Ryan, I've been, I've been, chewing over my resident Idaho tag for the past three years. I'm like, man, I really want to go hunt a new, new zone, et cetera, like a new 300 mile swath. But I put like seven, eight years into learning my hunt area. And like, like you said, I know where every bush, where every wallow, where every trail, where every trail that nobody else knows about is. And it's hard. Like, yeah, I would like to go and hunt somewhere else, but you know what? I know this area so damn well. And for me, it's all about chances and opportunity. And my best opportunity is going to be in an area that I know really well. Oh, 100%. You're going to learn those little swirly pockets when the transition of the thermals are. You're going to know where that herd bull sets up. So he knows where those swirls are going to happen and catch your ass. (laughs) Yep. Absolutely, dude. Absolutely. So, well, brother, listen, 
thanks so much for for hopping on here. You are a a wealth of information, especially for the new hunter, and some great advice, some great takeaway points here. Like, I'm pretty stoked we got to have this conversation. Well, thanks for having me, Mike, and it's a pleasure as usual. And um, hopefully, uh, I don't get too much hate mail for feeding my family 300 pounds of spoiled elk meat. Well, I mean, your kids only lost 12 <laughs> pounds to to copious cholera type <laughs> diarrhea, right? So it wasn't that big of a deal. I'm kidding. I'm kidding, listener. His kids didn't lose that much weight, only a couple pounds. So, all right, brother. Thanks.